All right, so let's get started. Uh, it's my pleasure to introduce Douglas Rep. CISM is a cybersecurity catalyst. Throughout his career, you will find he's squarely at the center of countless firsts. This includes writing the first state-level cyber incident response plan, leading the Critic EX national exercise, establishing the Region 5 cyber protection team, and establishing Indiana's first cyber working group, which later evolved into both the Indiana Cybersecurity Executive Council and the Cyber Leadership Alliance. Doc has served as the advisor to the state of Indiana for cybersecurity and authored Indiana's cybersecurity economic development plan. He has started, skilled, and pivoted cybersecurity businesses and served as a consultant and entrepreneur in residence for Purdue University. Another page. His most recent accomplishment was creating a statewide immersion cybersecurity workforce development program and raised $3 million in commitments to student financial assistance. Doug is a published author, international speaker, and has testified before Congress on cybersecurity workforce development. A decorated combat veteran, his greatest accomplishment is having raised two amazing children and having been trusted with America's sons and daughters. With further ado, let's welcome Doug. Thanks, Dave. Well, thanks. So I appreciate all of you coming out tonight because I, it's 4.30 in the afternoon, which means that I'm probably standing between you and food and or beer. So, um, and you're very, very fortunate. So you're very fortunate because this is the first time giving this presentation. Um, the next time this presentation will be given will be in Rwanda. So here at the end of next month. So you are the guinea pigs. So, but you also have the, uh, um, you also have the dubious honor of being here for the unveiling of a new hallmark term, which uh, I'll get into, I'll point it out, and you'll be able to say, I remember when I heard that for the first time. So, <clears throat> security ethics in the end of the world as we know it. Um, it's a pretty ominous title. How many of you actually read the, the little summary of what we were gonna talk about tonight? So, okay, all right, one, that's great. So we live in a digital economy and that's certainly no surprise to anybody that's here. And when we think about what a digital economy really is, we have to look at how we interact economically with other cultures, with the rest of the world. Many people have claimed that data is currency and there is some truth to that but the analogies that they use are a little bit outdated. Um, we've heard uh, data as equivalent to black gold to oil, um, but the fact of the matter is, is once oil is used, it's gone. It is a finite, uh, it's a finite substance. Land, we've heard it compared to land in, economic, in the economic sense, however, Again, once land is built upon, once that land is utilized, it can't be reutilized until whatever is built on top of it is torn down. So when you look at data, data as currency, data as something of value, has an exponential factor to it. And that is that data can be used 
multiple times and it can be used in infinite numbers of ways that provide value. <clears throat> so as we enter the digital economy, and the digital economy is really a global digital ecosystem where data is gathered, organized, and exchanged by a network of vendors for the purpose of deriving value from the accumulated information. When we look at it, <clears throat> we look at, um, look at the market share. In 2015, $122 billion in data analytics and exportation, the buying and selling of data. Um, the projected market share for 2022 is $274 billion around the world. So you can see some of the quotes there, the most value, valuable commodity of the digital age, the most valuable resource in the world. In an age where stock traders are locating their offices as close to the New York Stock Exchange as possible so that they can have a fragment of a second's advantage in transmitting data to make a trade, um, you can really start to understand the value of data. <clears throat> so data as currency, um, when we look at the new world as we transition and understand the value of data, there are four factors that have been described by Harvard as factors um, that can define data wealth within countries. So we look at volume, the absolute amount of broadband consumed by a country. And in doing this uh, research, the only the numbers that they were able to analyze really had to do with broadband consumption and utilization. So it's, it's impossible to track uh, the, the, the transition of data back and forth uh, around the world and, and really quantify it. So when you look at um, how, how do you say a country is data rich or has the potential to be data rich? So you look at volume, you look at usage, the number of active users that are on the internet. You look at accessibility, so how, how easy is it to get a hold of that data? And you look at complexity. So what level of complexity can you perform with that digital activity? And if you look at this, uh, this slide put together by uh, Harvard, you can see that the United States is, is way out front. So when we look at companies like Indonesia or China or Russia, and we put them in the context of these four criteria that we've, uh, we've defined, um, volume, some of those countries uh, you can see have huge volumes of data, but they limit accessibility. Uh, so they limit accessibility and usage for individuals. So not being one that wants to pick a fight with Harvard, but I'm going to. And that is that I argue we cannot look at wealth in the context of nations anymore. In a digital economy, what we're seeing rise out of a digital economy is not What's, what's important is not necessarily and completely the wealth of nations, but what we're seeing is a rise of what I call data barons. Just like the old robber barons of the Industrial Revolution um, who accumulated massive quantities of wealth and drove innovation 
and drove progress. What's arising right now, what I argue is what's arising right now is really about seven companies around the world that have, in essence, these four criteria, and I'll explain a little bit that, these four criteria, uh, which make them and will make them more powerful than the governments and the confines of our national boundaries. So when you look at these data barons, you look at these companies that exist out there and they accumulate the wealth and access to the data. Who's collecting our data out there? All right. So who is actually looking, who, who has the means to go out and collect all that data that exists out there? So in 2015, the majority of the data that was collected in the world had been collected in the last two years. That's grown exponentially since 2015. So as we look at the seven major players in the ecosystem, you really come up with two, two major countries where those companies exist. But again, I, I make the argument that we are transitioning from the power of nations to the power of these companies as these companies continue to grow their capability to not only collect data, but also to take that data and the algorithmics and invest in things like ML, DL, and AI and are using that data to generate wealth for their own individual companies or their own self-interests. Yes, deep learning and artificial intelligence. So when we look at these, if you look at governments, particularly our form of government, our government is not in the business of selling data. It's in the business of data that is freely accessible to everyone. We live in a democracy. So when we look at other forms of government, look at China, which has a fundamental difference. All right, in the United States, we revere innovation. Uh, Silicon Valley is all about what's the next great thing, what's the next great uh, invention that's coming out there. And God forbid you take somebody else's concept and improve upon it. You're asking for a lawsuit in an amazingly litigious society. But the fundamental difference with the entrepreneurship uh, culture in places like China is the fact that anything that is, if you can take something and make it better, if you can take your adversary's product and make it better, that's acceptable. That's acceptable. And the difference as we look at the two major players in, in data, particularly in use with, with AI, which is the evolution of, of how we utilize data, um, is that while we are concentrating on uh, the next great innovation, nations like China, Indonesia, Russia, and others are taking that data and creating massive quantities of practitioners in the application of those technologies and algorithms.
so let's take a just a there's there's two basic ways to really quantify um, artificial intelligence. Um, I'm going to use the example that closely uh, really mimics um, uh, comparison to the to the human brain to humans. So these types of AI, um, you know, reactive AI has been around for a while. It's basically reacting to to input. Uh, limited memory, which is capable of uh, capable of learning from repeated processes of historical data and using historical data to make decisions. Those two exist. Uh, and the good news is, is only those two really exist right now. The theory of mind where AI is used to better understand um, entities by being able to determine what their needs are, their emotions, their beliefs, and thought processes. That's being worked on right now. Emotional AI is it's in the works. People are doing it. What exists only in theory right now is self-awareness. So, um, and I don't think I have to, to, to explain to you what, you know, what self-awareness is. So keeping that in mind, if you read the synopsis of what I was going to talk about, or what I'm talking about tonight, I talked about rogue AIs. So, <clears throat> and this all, what I've been talking about is really kind of a prelude to what we're going to get into right now. So, uh, a couple years ago, Amazon decided that they were going to take uh, uh, an AI tool, which they built, and they were going to put it and revolu revolutionize their human resources. Um, what ended up happening, as you can see by the headline, is the algorithm, the AI, came back and said, don't hire females. So, now why is that? So, what does it take to have really good AI? Anybody know? What do you have to have in order to develop artificial intelligence? Training data. Lots of data massive quantities of data, massive quantities of data. So now, remember we're talking about data as currency, all of these things. If we can, if we gain a competitive advantage, whether in business or in medical processes or in banking, by the implementation of AI, then in order to lead in that field, you have to have massive quantities of data. So, which brings up some really interesting questions considering um, data and privacy right now is, is a huge issue, and particularly in the West, not so much in the East. So Amazon decided we're going to take AI and we're going we're to use it to hire the absolute best uh, candidates uh, for our company. So why do you think that the AI came back and said don't hire women? The reason was is the data set was flawed. It wasn't, actually, it wasn't flawed. The data set was an accurate representation of historically what had been done. So the uh, technology sector historically has been dominated by men. So the data set that was used to program the AI reflected that. So that brings up a very interesting ethical question. As we look towards the development of AI and as we um, gather and process data for 
applications, um, if our data sets are skewed like that, should we be altering those data sets to re reflect the values that we aspire to versus what has historically happened? So if you answer yes to that question, then the next question is, who gets to do that? Is it Amazon? Is it Facebook? Is it uh, Alibaba? Is it Huawei? Um, so very, very complex and very interesting um, ethical questions. So we move further down this path of ethics and data and security. And I ask you to look at three different definitions that I've put up here. So notice the similarities in what they are. Some could argue that they are a gradation of the same scale. So advertising is about making people aware of something. Brainwashing, if you look at bullet point two, is persuasion by propaganda or salesmanship. All right, and the, the big buzzword of, one of the big buzzwords of the day, social engineering, is the use of centralized planning in an attempt to manage social change and regulate the future development and behavior of a society. So I ask you to consider the techniques at which those three things are employed in modern society and where we're headed with those. So, has anybody seen The Great Hack on Netflix? Okay, a little dramatized, but definitely drives a point home. Cambridge Analytica, has anybody really thought about what Cambridge Analytica did and really, uh, you heard a little bit about it during the elections and things like that. But when you take a look at what Cambridge Analytica actually did, they collected over 5,000 data points on every undecided voter in the United States of America and created individual advertising plans for those folks, for those people. So now I ask you, reflect back on that last slide, on those three definitions. Was it advertising? Was it brainwashing? Was it social engineering? Where? do those definitions begin and end? So again, other very important questions that influence ethics in a digital world that's being transformed. So social engineering, by another def definition, is the application of social science uh, to, uh, to individuals, to populations. So the more we learn about what influences society and what people react to, um, whether it's at the basic level, you know, Maslow's hierarchy of needs, to the way that individuals uh, interact, to the way that groups interact, to the way that nations interact, the application and understanding of how people predictably will behave when introduced with information. Companies like Cambridge Analytica 
in others. Bell Pottinger was another organization. Practiced the theories of social engineering on whole nations. All right, they did it in Africa to a massive scale. And to some extent, it's still going on today. Cambridge Analytica used elections in Africa as the test case for what happened in the EU with Brexit, if you didn't know that, and with the last presidential elections in the United States. They were confident in their ability to accomplish what our last president wanted during his campaign because they had already done it using Africa as a test case. Now, they're not the only ones. So they got caught and they were really good at it. Um, as we speak now, countries like Ethiopia and Nigeria <clears throat> are using spyware to influence dissidents in our own countries to also influence people within their own boundaries on how they should vote. Um, Bell Pottinger actually had to formally apologize um, because they stirred up so much racial hostility on the grounds of uh, fabricated uh, injustices and inequalities. They actually had to come out and publicly apologize um, in South Africa for what they had done. So the African National Congress um, hired hacking teams, RCS, um, to do the same thing. And uh, while doing research for this speak, uh, a company that I routinely do business with um, sold spyware to um, Ethiopia for, that was used for some of the same dubious efforts. So we have to begin to ask these questions. Is it the responsibility of the company or individual that creates the product? Is it their responsibility? Should they be held liable? What is their ethical responsibility, or is it how that tool is used? So if you look at business ethics, it is the responsibility of a business leader to maximize the profits for their shareholders. By that justification, there's, no, there's, there's, there's not a standard for fairness. There's no decent standard for fairness out there. I mean, the last administration had to create a consumer fairness division you know, because of the way that companies were interacting with, with the public. So you have to ask yourself ethically, who's responsible for that? Is it the person or people or organization utilizing the spyware? Or is it the company that makes it? So very interesting, yes. I was just gonna bring up that, you know, we did have an answer to that years ago. Uh, in South Africa, and it was called divestiture. That it was the responsibility of the company owners to say, we're not going to own a company that does these things. And 
guess what? That affects the return to the shareholders, and then the CEOs, in their duty to the shareholders, have to respond. Sure. So, you know, I, I would say that there's probably a bit of a, there's a difference between a Cambridge Analytica and, uh, and the company that made the spyware, and the fact that Cambridge Analytica was all about the application and the intent the, for the use of the products and analytics that it was doing. Whereas um, you could, you know, ethically you can argue, you know, you, it's not the gun owner, you know, or it's not the gun, it's the gun owner, it's the intent of, of the gun owner. And even to a certain extent, our judicial system um, is as uh, consideration for, great consideration for intent. So, um, so it brings a, I mean, it's a it's very, I mean, this is exactly what I'm talking about. It's a very interesting, complex uh, organ, uh, uh, ethical question, so for sure. But, you know, um, Cambridge Analytica and Valpontinger both went out of business when it was discovered what they were doing. So, um, however, had they not gotten caught, my question, I mean, look what they already did before they, they got caught. So and did they really even get caught? Were they doing something that was illegal? Were they doing something that was immoral or unethical? You know, those are the questions we, we have to ask, you know. So, um, but that's a, that's a great, court, uh, great point. So in my, uh, in my, um, in my little write-up for, for this, I talked about also about, um, you know, a fantasy world where um, millions of cameras track, track you. And using predictive analytics, they determine whether or not you're going to say something bad against the government. The facial recognition software picks you out of a crowd. The uh, stormtroopers reach down into the crowd and grab you. And then they take you away to a reprogramming camp. So sounds pretty fantastic, doesn't it? So, welcome to China. So, as we speak, the Muslim minority in the north part of China, the Chinese government is using facial recognition and predictive analysis. And some of the criteria that was recently linked on how they're determining whether or not somebody is a dissident is as vague as they had a beard or once had a beard. I mean, these are real documents that, that, are, that are, you can go and look at the criteria that they're using to select people. So they're doing, at some level, predictive analysis on who might cause social unrest. Now understand that while we see this as potentially a crime against humanity, against free will and democracy, you have to understand the cultural mindset you know, not everybody thinks like we do. I know it's a crazy concept, all right? You know, but not everybody thinks like the West, particularly like the United States. The United States was a country that was founded the city on the hill, right? We're supposed to be the great utopia for all the religious organizations that got kicked out of every decent country in Europe. So they were gonna come here and build this shining city on a hill, all right? But in some cultures, and it's not right, wrong, or indifferent necessarily, but in some cultures, social stability is more important than individual rights. 
So, right now, as I said, the Muslim minority in northern China is being picked up. They're being, there's a huge, massive intelligence collection, data collection effort, both a physical one with agents operating within the populations and the utilization of AI and ML and DL in determining who the people are who are likely to become dissidents. Um, as I said, facial recognition software, millions and millions and millions of cameras, all connected, um, being able to identify those people and they're taken away to camps to be reprogrammed. And this is an actual satellite photo of one of those camps. So they exist. Um, the official message on this from the Chinese government, and, and I feel like I'm, don't feel like I'm picking on the Chinese so much, but um, right now they're, you know, they, they are the, the other AI world power. So, um, but the official, uh, the official line from the Chinese government is that they are, uh, you know, teaching them, uh, how to better integrate with, to integrate with society. But the fact of the matter is, is you have to ask yourself, how does this different from other regimes that we've seen try and accomplish this with more brutal or less sophisticated methods, uh, like we saw in Cambodia and Vietnam and, and other places, even in Russia. So, so this fantastical environment, um, you know, where, uh, where you've got Tom Cruise running around trying to prevent crimes before they happen. Um, to some extent, it's, it's here. It's here, it's level two AI, but it's here. So the good news is if you go back to that, 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 uh, that classification for AI is we're still only at level two, which means right now is the time that we need to ask ourselves these incredibly hard questions about ethics and how we want our data to be utilized and how we want our algorithms uh, to represent whatever values we choose. So if this scares you and you think, well, hey, you know, at least we're not doing that in the US, all right? Anybody ever heard of B-Link? Okay. So B-Link is the city of Indianapolis who has partnered with businesses and residents all through Marion County who can voluntarily connect to the police, connect their security cameras to the police intelligence center. So not quite a nation-sponsored effort to subjugate a whole culture or society or religion. But what I'm telling you is, is that if we, if we don't address the human ethical aspect of this, it's not a leap too far that this technology that we're using on our own is utilized for a nefarious purpose. Right now, this system is being used to solve crime. You know, and it's within the police department in Indianapolis, they do predictive analysis on crime. They, they absolutely do. Um, but my point to this is, is it's not just China. 
it's here too. It's here too. And we have not only a responsibility, but an obligation to inform the people that control this technology of what values that we want for them to represent as a society. We have to determine that. So that brings up a really interesting question. I've talked a lot about technology and the use of data and how people are using it and, and is a tool good or is it bad? Is it the way it's used? Is it not the way it's used? And we've been talking about ethics for a long, long time as, as a race, as a human race. So you can see Immanuel Kant deciding whether or not one's actions are moral. It should be considered what the universal benefit is. So by Kant's theory, if I were to steal, I have to ask myself, if I want to determine whether or not it's moral or ethical, I have to ask myself if everybody stole, would that be a good thing or a bad thing? And that's how Kant said we should determine what our ethics are. So Karl Marx and Friedrich Engels, um, they believe that you can't have a universal code of ethics. And, and, and again, that's another question. As, as nations, nations used to decide what their ethics and values are. But as we look in a digital economy and we look in a digital world, those boundaries mean less and less. They, they mean less. Um, you know, you can experience the, the life of somebody in Syria through Twitter to a great extent. Things that we could never access before, that one-to-one -one human connection and, and transmitting of, of experience and sharing of experience now doesn't recognize any borders. Nobody can control that anymore. So we look at things, we have to start looking at things from what, what is universal? What are the universal values that we all have to subscribe to? Because as, as all this data comes together and all these algorithms come together, and right now AI level two is being used um, primarily in business and uh, medical and finance and a few verticals, all right? And, and believe me, we're, we're a long way from self-actualization. We're a long way from that, long, long, long way. But it's coming, it's coming. So, uh, so again, the point is we, we need to start looking at universal values. But Karl Marx and Frederick Engels, uh, um, they said there can't be any universal values because ethics and values are dependent upon the economic situation of the nation that it's in. There's a certain amount of relativity that goes uh, along with that. What is now flawed in that theory, again, is we look at what is the importance of nations and borders. So we are experiencing cultural one-to-one -one human contact on a massive scale through the revolution of, of data and technology right now. So I challenge this theory in that um, it may have been accurate to some extent at one time, but it's less and less accurate now. So as we work towards conversions, we are less, and, and I may get, I was in the army for a long, long time. So um, this is, this is not a, a betrayal of our, our nation, but it's less and less important on an individual level whether or not we're Americans or Saudis or Chinese or Panamanian. Um, it's less and less important 
so Max Steiner, the next evolution, you know, the common good is only an illusion because the only ethics that are beneficial are the ones that benefit the self. So if you go to the fact that we are all born naked alone and we all die alone, um, his argument is, is that, you know, ethics, we can justify anything that becomes self-serving. So, and then Friedrich Nietzsche, everybody's uh, favorite crazy person, thought that everything that the powerful do is, is moral. So I don't know where he got that, but I don't know where he got a lot of his, his theories. I'm sure there's something to it. I just find it to be ridiculous. So we look at the data revolution. We look at the security of ourselves, our personal information, the way that we live, democracy, freedom. Think about, think about democracy and social engineering. There's something if you want to chew on it for a while. You know, are the choices you make really your choices anymore when we're applying uh, social science theory to marketing. So one could argue that those X amount of votes in the last election, you know, um, did they really vote the way that they wanted to or did we cross that social engineering, brainwashing, advertising boundary? Um, so there's another theory of moral development and I ask you to give some consideration to this as we evolve as a, as humankind, as, as a race, um, as the human race. I ask you to keep this in mind. Can we evolve to a level of individual ethical standards? Um, that in an age where individuals can access power and knowledge at massive scales, all right, you no longer have to come to Purdue University to be the world's best hacker. All right, now I'm not, I'm not saying don't go to <laughs> Purdue University, um, but my point is, is that um, in the 80s, we had a saying, information wants to be free. We were very idealistic, and when the universities and the government owned the internet, we would break into the internet in order to gain access to knowledge. And what we thought was that access to knowledge will allow people to raise themselves up out of their condition, just like the printing press and the Gutenberg Bible. You know, um, we believed that. The one thing we didn't take into account was that very, very, very basic ethical question. And that is, it's not knowledge that's inherently good or evil, it's how you use it. It's the application of that knowledge that's inherently good or evil. So with individual access to massive quantities of data and with the convergence of, of all of this data and the refinement of algorithmics and the development of AI and, and all these things, you know, we have to ask ourselves, do we need to evolve ethically as humans when we have the responsibility of having so much knowledge and power at our fingertips? So... Um, it's a huge question, and it's, it's a very complex area. And to be honest, I haven't seen a lot of people looking at it. Um, there is a lot of questions about 
uh, ethics within certain verticals and certain subjects in certain areas. But, you know, I, I put up here this example of Accenture's universal principles of data ethics. Um, you know, it is one of the very few stabs I've seen at someone or some industry or somebody in industry starting to say, where does the responsibility lie? Does it lie with the, with the coder? Does it lie with the, uh, you know, does it lie with the company? Does it lie with the person who utilizes the tool? Um, and I just don't see a lot of work getting done. In 48, the UN came up with the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. How has that gone? You know, we still can't enforce human rights around the world. You know, so when we look at universal ethics or a universal code of conduct, and we do it through the cultural lens of different countries and different societies, um, it becomes an incredibly complex uh, ethical question. So what makes one value system better than the other? But what I can tell you is, is with the interconnectivity of individuals, this, this question is going to become more and more important. What are the universal values? We can wait for it to evolve, but can we wait for those universal values to evolve while we rush into technology like quantum computing and AI in other areas. So I've seen some things out there. Um, global bioethics, anybody, anybody seen anything on uh, biohacking? So CRISPR technology, you can buy kits on the internet now, do it in your garage. So we're now starting, just now starting to convene global organizations to talk about these things and to help define what those ethical responsibilities are. Um, you know, is withholding uh, a cure because you don't know, or a solution, potential solution, because you don't know the effects, the long-term effects of it, you know, uh, is that ethical versus unleashing an unproven or untested uh, uh, technology out there. So um, I've talked about kind of a lot of things at a really high level here. Um, and I hope that I'm, I've given you something to really chew on. Um, it's not what I'll be able to affect in the remainder of my time here on Earth uh, in this area will be, will be pretty small. But those of you that are still have many more footsteps on this earth, these are the decisions that you're going to have to make. These are the things that you will confront. These are, um, you will become the leaders and the researchers and the scientists and the coders. And you will have to make those moral and ethical decisions at some point. Um, on how your technology or how the technology in your life influences you and the decisions that you make, your quality of life, how it impacts other people. So um, I would just ask you uh, to 
the more complicated things get is to go back to the most simple things, and that is how do we wish to conduct ourselves as a human race? How do we wish to treat each other? How do we want the future to look? And, you know, work on those, work on those hard questions. They're, they're yours. So that's all I have for tonight. I appreciate all of you coming out. I'll be happy to answer any questions that you might have. Um, I know that's a lot of really deep, heavy stuff. So, Frank. I know you're pretty in touch with the government and some of the legislative issues. How do you think, like, the state and the federal government are kind of addressing some of these key issues? They're not. They're not. Right now, the industry, the industry is smart enough. So it's, it's been pretty interesting. So specifically to AI, we've heard several tech leaders, prominent tech leaders come out and say, actually say to the government, we need to regulate this. So um, what, I would, what, what I would say is there's a, lot, there's a lot of great people in Washington, D.C. I mean, I believe that there's a lot of people there that are trying to do the right thing. But I don't know if there's a level of understanding about the effects of what technology and data and convergence uh, singularity, um, what that's bringing for the future. Um, and I'm not sure that um, the industry right now, particularly in the United States, is very interested in influencing privacy. And how, how, how I segue to that is, is the fact that with privacy, that limits the data that can be collected and how it can be utilized to, to some extent. In China, they don't have those restrictions. The, the population freely gives up their data uh, in order for convenience. So, and to some extent, we do. Um, we give it up in Facebook and we give it up in, in Amazon and in our web browsers and all those things and those 15-page legal disclaimers that nobody ever reads but we all check off on. So, um, right now, to my knowledge, there are no international um, work groups or think tanks that are specifically um, looking at uh, ethics and data in, in the application of AI. I'm sure there are some out there, but I'm telling you, there's, it's just not, it's, our governments aren't looking at it. And one other question, I know you were just back from Israel. Is there anything in Israel they're doing that's unique or any best practices over there that, that we should be duplicating? Um, so again, Israel is, um, my experience with Israel uh, is that um, they are an incredibly innovative society. Um, and I believe that innovation is born of three different things. Innovation is born out of research. Innovation is born out of businesses that do business daily that have to invent processes or natu naturally come up with processes that make their lives easier. Um, and then necessity. I mean, necessity is the mother of invention. So uh, specifically within Israel, they're constantly at war, um, particularly in cyberspace. Um, so uh, they are very good at, uh, um, at technology. Um, to, they're the second largest exporter of goods and services for cybersecurity in the world, which is about 30 times their weight per capita. Um, so I would say innovation is, is what their, their hallmark is. And they've also figured out how to commercialize that innovation, um, mostly through uh, support through the state of Israel and through the country. So. Um, they've got a great, great way of doing that. Um, but uh, particular technologies, I mean, they've got all kinds of cool technologies. 
a lot of water, a lot of water technologies, and um, because their needs over there, and definitely a lot of security applications, social media applications. They love our cell phones. So, um, if you ever go to Israel, you don't want anything on your cell phone to be owned by somebody else. Take a burner. So it's just a fact of life. So, yeah. So, um, and you know, I, again, I talked a lot about uh, about China and, and the cultural differences and the way they view things there. Um, but you know, uh, our allies are—you know—I won't say they're our, our allies do similar things. I mean, we all spy on each other. So, um, you know, the largest spy ring ever busted in the United States was Israel. So. Um, Anyway, any other questions? Come on, somebody, yes. I think basically it depends what your reference frame when you're talking about, uh, say, data or oil or whatever. Uh, nowadays it's basically, the, say, the dollar and the markets, and it used to be some people, they worshiping the golden calf, now they are worshiping, worshiping the bull market. Now, what's going on right now, some people, they, somebody wrote a book about the black swan. And right now, it seems there's a flock of black swans which are coming in. And basically, you don't, in the regular media, they don't talk about it, even though there are a whole bunch of things going on, particularly in China. And those people around China, now it's going to affect everybody all around the world, that the parts that were made in China, now they are closing factories in South Korea, because there is a mess, there is no tourists from China to go over there, so they have to put money into the hotels and restaurants and everything. So everybody is just printing money, and it seems that the only solution that most of the people that have, they have is just basically printing money, more money, more money, more money, which is going to be sacrificing of many for just a few, very few. Now. As I said, you're talking about the oil. Oil is some necessity. You have to use it. It doesn't matter who you are, where you are. Money nowadays and the data that you're talking, basically, those people who are paying for it is those people who are in the market. And that's the false narrative, but basically that's what the fake news is just projecting for everybody. Oh, this is the only thing that you have to have. And now we are getting to a point that there's going to be some kind of a problem, big problem for the whole world. Now, nobody discusses it because they say, oh, if you say this, something is going to happen, it's going to be bad, and whatever. So I don't know what's going to be your perspective on that one, that in this particular segment of time, this is what people think is important, but it is not. And there used to be a golden rule that they say, don't do to others what to, they, you don't want to, them to do to you, or do to others what they want them to do to you. Now they have changed it to golden rules. Whoever has the gold is going to set the rule. So I don't know what you think about that. No, that's a great point. So, uh, you know, Gandhi had, I think, seven rules of, uh, uh, of uh, he had seven rules that he talked about and uh, about rights and human rights and things like that. But he made the argument that if, um, you know, if you have the right, the individual has the right to, to exist, to life, then you also have the obligation to, to not uh, take somebody else's life. So um, he was talking about the rights and, and, and obligations. So within 
the world today, we talk a lot about what our rights are, but we don't talk a lot about what our obligations are. So, uh, you know, the greatest point of prosperity in, in the United States, and you can actually fact check this, was a time when, uh, when we taxed the largest companies the most. So, um, you know, countries are experimenting with things like a living wage. You know, as we displace workers uh, in the workforce, which is coming with autonomy, it's, it's happening now with robotics. As we do those things, we're going to have increasingly amount of people that are displaced, and our standard of living will continue to rise for those that can afford it. So, um, you know, so again, this takes me back full circle to, you know, how do we, how do, how do we wish to define ourselves as we move forward? forward? Now, uh, I'm not going to talk politics and, 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 and uh, candidates and stuff out there, but, you know, in the richest country in the world right now, we don't have a health care system that uh, takes care of the most disenfranchised people in, in our, our country. So what are we going to do even more when people don't have jobs? You know, when they're replaced by economy, or by, by autonomy and things like that. And, and then you look at the gathering of wealth up there. You know, businesses and people are collecting wealth right now. They're not reinvesting it. They're holding on to it. So if you look at the richest people in, in the world today, they're not redistributing that wealth. They're, they're holding on to it. And that's a phenomenon that's, that's unique to, uh, to some extent to this time period. So... Um, you know, getting back to what, what you were saying, you know, um, you know, the craze, first of all, I'll be the first to admit I'm, I'm not a huge fan of Silicon Valley um, because the craze out there is, you know, these companies with a mission that feel good. And what's happening is, is when they capitalize, when they take in all that money, they get to decide who the money goes to. They get to decide what charities they're, they're supporting you know, individual giving is dropping off, but yet we as workers expect our companies to contribute and expect our companies to have a social, uh, uh, social mandate. Yet the people, you know, to a great extent, it's like you said, the people who control the gold make the rules. So, and that goes back to Nietzsche, right? Who said that the rich and the powerful, anything they do is moral. So um, again, very, very complex questions, but uh, absolutely. The only, I am a bit of an optimist in the fact that um, with the, this human connection, without the boundaries and the vestiges of bureaucracies of governments, and I'm not an anarchist, but with the ability to connect one-on-one -on -one with, with people and experience that you used to only get through traveling to a different country, that we can achieve a a higher level of understanding in human needs. I was a soldier for a long time, and what I can tell you is, is I've been to some of the worst places in the entire world. And what I know to be true is that when I sat with a Bedouin, the Bedouin wanted the same things that I wanted at a very, very basic level. They wanted, um, they wanted safety. They wanted, uh, they wanted the ability to uh, uh, have some opportunity to feed their family. You know, those ba basic Maslowian, I don't know if that's a word, but I'm, I'm coining it now. But those basic needs, human needs, they wanted those also. 
Now, all the trappings that came on top of it, you know, come with societal controls, you know, like what tribe do you belong to, what country are you, you know, what's your religion say, or, or whatever. So, so I'm a bit of an optimist in, in that one-to-one that -one human connection um, that, uh, that this next generation will be much more evolved in that awareness than, than we were. And then we can shake off some of the trappings of, you know, um, I can't talk to you because you're a communist, you know. So, I mean, that's just stupid. So, yeah. Sure. They said some people they believe that basically because of all these gatherings, there might be some kind of a crash or something that maybe the dog was below ten thousand or whatever, but then it's gonna recover and then it's gonna go up to maybe fifty, sixty thousand. And they say by that time, because of the way that they're behaving and creating money, probably it might be sixty, seventy thousand, but the loaf of bread is gonna be basically two thousand dollars. <laughs> So what do you think about that, what, what they are saying about this? Uh, I think our economies are too hopelessly entwined to allow that to happen anymore. I mean, we bail out our system now instead of allowing it to fail. So as we teeter towards these things, we'll take the most extreme measures that we can to keep our economies in, in line. But uh, uh, so I don't, I, don't see a, I don't see an apocalyptic uh, crash coming or, um, with, the, with the economy with any... <clears throat> with with any of this, I mean that term "too big to fail." The, the whole world is that way now. I, I mean, we can't go to war with China. We can't go to war with Russia because our our economies are too hopelessly intertwined. So, um, and and I think that's a good thing. So, because that's basically what you are saying. The Bible said, "The blessed are the peacemakers," but what they are saying over here are blessed are the warmongers. Because you do all of these industries involving war, they are just, they are going off and everybody believes in them rather than believing in peacemaking. So as I said, you might be an optimist. I'm also an optimist in general, but the way I, I look at these, what's going on around me, I just don't listen to regular news, it's brainwashing. You go a little bit behind the news. Because when you look at China, they say 500 people, 1,000 people, 2,000 people have died and there are maybe 75,000 are infected, then you look at it, you don't close the industrial hub of the world for maybe 2,000 people, 75,000 or something like that. So something doesn't add up. So that's what I'm saying. But I agree with you, there are a lot of things that you talked about and they are basically major point that everybody has to discuss with their people around them and then decide what they want to do. Yeah, I'm kind of encouraged. I mean, this, this whole, uh, uh, I forget what the name of the virus is that's the coronavirus. So, uh, yeah, well, somebody, I heard somebody refer to it as the Kung flu the other day. I thought it was rather interesting, but uh, um, I'm, I'm actually kind of encouraged by it because, um, you know, um, seeing the world respond to something that's uh, potentially a pandemic, you know, and respond in a coordinated uh, uh, fashion I think is, is encouraging. And uh, again, as we become more intertwined, um, I, I think that uh, um, we're going to, we, we will see more of that. And we, we do see more of it now. So we see world reactions to, to things that affect us all. So we, we can't afford not to. So did you have a question earlier?
So my question is that, um, so I, I completely agree with the uh, the uh, way we you, you spoke about how um, the corporates especially need to have certain rules and ethics on how they utilize our data, which is avail available publicly. And I, I believe the acts like the GDPR and the CCPA are mm -hmm. maybe uh, one of the, uh, the forefront acts in, in allowing us to properly um, set rules and guidelines on how data is being utilized. But I also believe in the the sovereignty and the freedom of data in the internet. And so people always have a choice. Like you said, you spoke about we always, we never read the terms and agreements, but we just check off on it. And um, so what I'm trying to say is like, shouldn't we uh, try to, um, in, in this dig digital age, shouldn't we try to incorporate uh, uh, knowledge on how we should use data and how we should be careful with social media with with the internet as a whole into our education system and tell people and make sure people understand the implications of absolutely things which go wrong you're, you're preaching you're preaching brother i mean i i love that and um you know i i always use the analogy um back in the back in the old days um on on uh, after school and on Saturday mornings, you know, we had little public service announcement PSAs, and they still have some out there now, but they had a guy named Freddie Kilowatt who was like a little lightning bolt. And uh, I learned from that cartoon not to stick my finger in a light socket, you know. Um, why we don't do that with the world that we live in now and where the dangers really exist, which is on the internet, you know, why we don't have those same type, that same type of education why uh, digital citizenship is not required in uh, K through 12 um, is beyond me. I mean, I fight that fight every day here at the state of Indiana to, to try and convince you know DOD and uh, or DOE and DWD and those guys to to consider things like that. So absolutely, I mean, digital citizenship. There's there's countries doing great things like Estonia is killing it right now just in digital citizenship. You know where they're starting to, to really understand what the responsibilities are for that. So, but yeah, so I'm 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 with you. So any other questions? All right.